Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of The World of Percy Jackson. In this episode we're going to read chapters 17 to 18 and in the previous episode we read chapters 15 to 16 and overall it was just a saga of um, Percy, Frank, and Coach Hedge trying to find Forceus for they had hoped that Forceus would provide some valuable knowledge to them but in vain they had ended up being trapped by Forceus in an unbreakable, somehow unbreakable aquarium tank and had also come to find out that Forceus had not only tried to imprison the trio, but had also tried to imprison other monsters such as Telkines. And overall, it looked like more uh, like a monster abusement, a monster abusive behavior than compared to just keeping them for show. Um, so essentially what happened was uh, Percy was unable to get the rest of the monsters out, so the Talkines kept, uh, just stayed in the aquarium, unfortunately, but Percy had no time to save anyone but themselves, so he had reassured the Talkines and every all the other monsters that he would be back for them. So as they ran for the exit, we're now going to see what had happened to the rest of the group while the th- these the, these three were trying to run for their lives in, uh, so that they wouldn't be stuck in an aquarium, in a, in a, Poseidon-proof aquarium tank, as I like to say. So chapter 17, Annabeth. Annabeth was trying to cheer up Hazel, regaling her with Percy's greatest seaweed brain moments when Frank stumbled down the hall and burst into her cabin. Where's Leo? He gasped. Take off! Take off! Both girls shot to their feet. Where's Percy? Annabeth demanded. And the goat? Frank grabbed his knees, trying to breathe. His clothes were stiff and damp, like they'd been washed in pure starch. On deck. They're fine. We're being followed. Annabeth pushed him past him, put, pushed past him and took the stairs three at a time. Hazel right behind her and Frank trailing, still gasping for air. Percy and Hedge lay on the deck, looking exhausted. Hedge was missing his shoes. He grinned at the sky, muttering, Awesome. Awesome. Percy was covered with nicks and scratches like he jumped through a window. He didn't say anything, but he grabs Annabeth's hand weakly as if to say, Be right with you as soon as the world stops spinning. Leo, Piper, and Jason, who'd been eating in the mess hall, came rushing up the stairs. What? What? Leo cried, holding a half-eaten grilled cheese sandwich. Can't the guy even take a lunch break? What's wrong? Followed! Frank yelled again. Followed by what? Jason asked. I don't know, Frank panted. Whales? Sea monsters? Maybe Kate and Porky. Ameth wanted to strangle the guy, but she wasn't sure her hands would fit around his thick neck. That makes absolutely no sense. Leo, you you better get us out of here. Leo put his sandwich between his teeth, pirate style, and ran for the helm. Soon the Argo II was rising into the sky. Annabeth manned the aft crossbow. She saw no sign of pursuit by whales or otherwise. But Percy, Frank, and Hedge didn't start to recover until the Atlantis skyline was a hazy smudge in the distance. Charleston, Percy said, hobbling around the deck like an old man. He still sounded pretty shaken up. Set course for Charleston. Charleston? Jason said the name as if it had brought back bad memories. What exactly did you find in Atlanta? Frank unzipped his backpack and started bringing out souvenirs. 
some peach preserves, a couple of t-shirts, a snow globe. No, these not really Chinese handcuffs. Annabeth forced herself to stay calm. How about you start from the top of the story, not the backpack. They gathered on they gathered on the quarter deck so Leo could hear the conversation as he navigated. Percy and Frank took turns relating what had happened at the Georgia Aquarium with Coach Hedge interjecting from time to time. That was awesome! Or, then I kicked her in the head! At least the coach seemed to have forgotten about Percy and Annabeth falling asleep in the stable the night before. But judging from Percy's story, Annabeth had worse problems to worry about than being grounded. When Percy explained about the captive sea creatures in the aquarium, she understood why he seemed so upset. That's terrible, she said. We need to help them. We will, Percy promised. In time. But I have to figure out how. I wish... He shook his head. Never mind. First, we have to deal with this bounty on our heads. Coach Hedge had lost interest in the conversation, probably because it was no longer about him, and wandered toward the bow of the ship, practicing his roundhouse kicks and complimenting himself on his technique. Annabeth gripped the hilt of her dagger. (sighs) A bounty on our heads. As if we didn't attract enough monsters already. Do we get wanted posters? Leo asked. And do they have our bounties, like, broken down on a price list? Hazel wrinkled her nose. What are you talking about? Just curious as to how much I'm going for these days, Leo said. I mean, I can understand not being as pricey as Percy or Jason, but am I worth, like, two francs or three francs? Hey! Frank complained. Knock it off, Annabeth ordered. At least we know our next step is to go to Charleston to find this map. Piper leaned against the control plant panel. She'd done her braid with white feathers today, which looked good with her dark brown hair. Annabeth wondered how she found the time. Annabeth could barely remember to brush her hair. A map, Piper said, but a map to what? The Mark of Athena. Percy looked cautiously at Annabeth like he was afraid he'd overstepped. She must have been putting out a strong, I don't want to talk about it vibe. Whatever that is, he continued, we know it leads to something important in Rome. Something that might heal the rift between the Romans and Greeks. The giant's bane, Hazel added. Percy nodded. And in my dream, the twin giant said something about a statue. Uh, Frank rolled his not exactly Chinese handcuffs between his fingers. According to Forcius, we'd have to be insane to try to find it. But what is it? Everyone looked at Annabeth. Her scalp uh, tingled. As if the thoughts in her brain were agitating to get out. A statue. Athena. Greek and Roman. Her nightmares and her arguing with her mom. She saw how the pieces were coming together. But she couldn't believe it was true. The answer was too big. Too important. And much too scary. She noticed Jason studying her. As if he knew exactly what she was thinking. And didn't like it any more than she did. Again, she couldn't help but wonder. Why does this guy make me so nervous? Is he really on my side? Or maybe that was her mom talking. I'm close to an answer, she said. I'll know more if we find this map. Jason, the way you reacted to the name Charleston, have you been there before? Jason glanced uneasily at Piper, though Annabeth wasn't sure why. Yeah, he admitted. Reyna and I did a quest there about a year ago. We were salvaging Imperial Gold weapons from the CSS Hunley. The what? Piper asked. 
Whoa, Leo said. That's the first successful military submarine. From the Civil War? I've always wanted to see that. It was designed by Roman demigods, Jason said. It held a secret stash of Imperial gold torpedoes until we rescued them and brought them back to Camp Jupiter. Hazel crossed her arms. So the Romans fought on the Confederate side? As a girl whose grandmother was a slave, can I just say, not cool? Jason put his hands in front of him, palms up. I personally was not alive then, and it wasn't all Greeks on one side and all Romans on the other. But yes, not cool. Sometimes demigods make bad choices. He looked sheepishly, sheepishly at Hazel. Like, sometimes we're too suspicious and we speak, speak without thinking. Hazel stared at him. Slowly, it seemed to dawn on her that he was apologizing. Jason elbowed Leo. Ow! Leo yelled. I mean, yeah, bad choices. Like not trusting people's brothers who, you know, might need saving, hypothetically speaking. Hazel pursed her lips. Fine. Back to Charleston. Are you saying we should check that submarine again? Jason shrugged. Well, I can think of two places in Charleston we might need to search. The museum where they keep the Hunley. That's one of them. And it has a lot of relics from the Civil War. A map could be hidden in one. I know the layout. I could lead a team inside. I'll go, Leo said. That sounds cool. Jason nodded. He turned to Frank, who was trying to pull his fingers out of the Chinese handcuffs. You should do. You should come too, Frank. We might need you. Frank looked surprised. Why? Not like I was much good at that aquarium. You did fine, Percy assured him. It took all three of us to break that glass. Besides, you're a child of Mars, Jason said. The ghosts of defeated causes are bound to serve you. And the museum in Charleston has plenty of Confederate ghosts. We'll need you to keep them in line. Frank gulped. Anna remembered Percy's comment about Frank turning into a giant goldfish, and she resisted the urge to smile. She'd never be able to look at the big guy again without seeing him as a koi. Okay, Frank relented. Sure. He frowned at his fingers, trying to pull them out of the trap. Uh, how do you... Leo chuckled. Man, you've never seen those before? There's a simple trick to getting out. Frank tugged again with no luck. Even Hazel was trying not to laugh. Frank grimaced with concentration. Suddenly, he disappeared. On the deck where he'd been standing, a green iguana crouched next to an empty seat of Chinese handcuffs. Well done, Frank Zhang. Leo said dryly, doing his impression of Chiron the centaur. That is exactly how people beat Chinese handcuffs. They turn into iguanas. Everyone busted out laughing. Frank turned back to human, picking up the handcuffs and shoved them in his backpack. He managed an embarrassed smile. Anyway, Frank said, clearly anxious to change the subject. The museum is one place to search, but, uh, Jason, you said there were two. Jason's smile faded. Whatever he was thinking about, Annabeth could tell it wasn't pleasant. <sighs> yeah. He said, the other place is called the Battery. Uh, it's a park right by the harbor. The last time I was there, with Reyna, he glanced at Piper, then rushed on. We saw something in the park, a ghost or some sort of spirit, like a southern bell from the Civil War, glowing and floating around. We tried to approach it, but it disappeared whenever we got close. Then Reyna had this feeling. She said she should try it alone, like maybe it would only talk to a girl. She went up to the spirit by herself, and sure enough, it spoke to her. Everyone waited. What did it say? Annabeth asked. Reyna wouldn't tell me, 
Jason admitted, but it must have been important. She seemed shaken up. Maybe she got a prophecy. Or some bad news. Raina never acted the same around me after that. Ambeth considered that. After their experience with the Eidolons, she didn't like the idea of approaching a ghost. Especially one that changed people with bad news or prophecies. On the other hand, her mom was the goddess of knowledge. And knowledge was the most powerful weapon. Annabeth couldn't turn down a possible source of information. A girl's adventure, then, Annabeth said. Piper and Hazel can come with me. Both nodded, though Hazel looked nervous. No doubt her time in the underworld had given her enough ghost experiences for two lifetimes. Piper's eyes flashed defiantly, like anything Reyna could do, she could do. Annabeth realized that if six of them went on these two quests, it would leave Percy alone on the ship with Coach Edge, which was maybe not a situation a caring girlfriend should put him in. Nor was she eager to let Percy out of her sight again. Not after they'd been apart for so many months. On the other hand, Percy looked so troubled by his experience with those imprisoned sea creatures, she thought maybe he could, he could use a rest. She met his eyes, asking him a silent question. He nodded, as if to say, Yeah, it'll be fine. So that's settled. Annabeth turned to Leo, who was studying his console, listening to Festus creak and click over the intercom. Leo, how long until we reach Charleston? Good question, he muttered. Festus just detected a larger group of eagles behind us. Long-range radar still not in sight. Piper leaned over the console. Are you sure they're Roman? Leo rolled his eyes. No, Pipes. It could be a random group of giant eagles flying in perfect formation. Of course they're Roman. I suppose we could turn the ship around and fight. Which would be a very bad idea, Jason said, and remove any doubt that we're enemies of Rome. Or, I've got another idea, Leo said. If we went straight to Charleston, we could be there in a few hours. But the eagles would overtake us, and things would get complicated. Instead, we could send out a decoy to trick the eagles. We take the ship on a detour and go the long way to Charleston, and get there tomorrow morning. Hazel started to protest, but Leo raised his hand. I know, I know. Nico's in trouble, and we have to hurry. It's June 27th, Hazel said. After today, four more days. Then he dies. I know, but this might throw the Romans off our trail. We still should have enough time to reach Rome. Hazel scowled. When you say should have enough. Leo shrugged. How do you feel about barely enough? Hazel put her face in her hands for a count of three. Sounds about typical for us. Annabeth decided to take that as a green light. Okay, Leo, what kind of deco or decoy are we talking about? I'm so glad you asked. He punched a few buttons on the console, rotated the turntable, and repeatedly pressed the A button on his Wii controller really, really fast. He called into the intercom. Buford, report for duty, please. Frank took a step back. There's somebody else on the ship? Who's Buford? A puff of steam shot from the stairwell and Leo's automatic table climbed on deck. Annabeth hadn't seen much of Buford during the trip. He mostly stayed in the engine room. Leo insisted that Buford had a secret crush on the engine. He was a three-legged table with a mahogany top. His bronze base, base had several drawers, spinning gears, and a set of steam vents. Buford was toting a bag like a mail sack tied to one of his legs. He clattered to the helm and made a sound like a train whistle. This is Buford, Leo announced. Y you name your furniture? Frank asked. 
Leo snorted. <laughs> Man, you just wish you had furniture this cool. Buford, are you ready for Operation End Table? Buford spewed steam. He stepped to the railing, his mahogany top split into four pie slices, which elongated into wooden blades. The blades spun, and Buford took off. A helicopter table, Percy muttered. Gotta admit, that's cool. What's in the bag? Dirty demigod laundry, Leo said. I hope you don't mind, Frank. Frank choked. <laughs> what? Don't throw the eagles off our scent. Those were my only extra pants. Leo shrugged. I asked Buford to get them laundered and folded while he's out. Hopefully he will. He rubbed his hands and grinned. Well, I call that a good day's work. I'm going to calculate our detour route now. See you all at dinner. Percy passed out early, which left Annabeth with nothing to do in the evening except stare at her computer. She'd brought Daedalus' laptop with her. Of course. Two years ago, she'd inherited the machine from the greatest inventor of all time. And it was loaded with invention ideas, schematics, and diagrams, most of which Annabeth was still trying to figure out. After two years, a typical laptop would have been out of date. But Annabeth figured Daedalus' machine was still about 50 years ahead of its time. It could expand into a full-size laptop, shrink into a tablet computer, or fold into a wafer of metal smaller than a cell phone. It ran faster than any computer she'd ever had, could access satellites or Hephaestus TV broadcasts from Mount Olympus, and ran custom-made programs that could do just about anything except tie shoelaces. There might have been an app for that too, but Annabeth hadn't found it yet. She sat on her bunk, using one of Daedalus's 3D rendering programs to study a model of the Parthenon in Athens. She'd always yearned to visit it, both because she loved architecture and because it was the most famous temple to her mother. Now she might get her wish, if they live long enough to reach Greece. But the more she thought about the Mark of Athena and the old Roman legend Freyna had mentioned, the more nervous she got. She didn't want to, but she recalled her argument with her mother. Even after so many weeks, the words still stung. Annabeth had been riding the subway back from the Upper East Side after visiting Percy's mom. During the long months when Percy was missing, Annabeth made the trip at least once a week, partly to give Sally Jackson and her husband Paul an update on the search, and partly because Annabeth and Sally needed to lift each other's spirits and convince one another that Percy would be fine. The spring had been especially hard. By then, Annabeth had reason to hope Percy was alive, since Harrow's plan seemed to involve sending him to the Roman side. But she couldn't remember where... He was. Jason had remembered his old camp's location, more or less. But all the Greeks' magic, even that of the campers of Hecate's Hecate's cabin, couldn't confirm that Percy was there. Or anywhere. He seemed to have disappeared from the planet. Rachel the Oracle had tried to read the future, and while she couldn't see much, she'd been certain that Leo needed to finish the Argo II before they could contact the Romans. Nevertheless, Annabeth had spent every spare moment scouring all sources for any rumors of Percy. She had talked to nature spirits, read legends about Rome, dug for clues on Daedalus' notebook, and spent hundreds of golden drachmas on iris messages to every friendly spirit, demigod, or monster she'd ever met. All with no luck. That particular afternoon, coming back from Sally's, Annabeth had felt even more drained than usual. She and Sally had first cried, then attempted to pull themselves together. But their nerves were afraid. Finally, Annabeth took the Lexington Avenue subway down to Grand Central. They were on their way to get back to her high school dorm from the Upper East Side. But Annabeth liked going through Grand Central Terminal. The beautiful design and the vast open space reminded her of Mount Olympus. Grand buildings made her feel better. Maybe because being in a place so permanent made her feel 
more permanent. She had just passed Sweet on America, the candy shop where Percy's mom used to work, and was thinking about going inside to buy some blue candy for old time's sake, when she saw Athena studying the subway map on the wall. Mother! Annabeth couldn't believe it. She hadn't seen her mom in months, not since Zeus had closed the gates of Olympus and had forbidden all communication with demigods. Many times, Annabeth had tried to call on her mom anyway, pleading for guidance, sending up burnt offerings with every meal at camp. She'd had no response. Now here was Athena, dressed in jeans and hiking boots and a red flannel shirt, her dark hair cascading over her shoulders. She held a backpack and a walking stick like she was prepared for a long journey. I must return home, Athena murmured, studying the map. The way is complex. I wish Odysseus was here. He would understand. Mom, Annabeth said, Athena! The goddess turned. She she seemed to look right through Annabeth with no recognition. That was my name, the goddess said dreamily, before they sacked my city, took my identity, made me this. She looked at her clothes in disgust. I must return home. Annabeth stepped back in shock. You're... You're Minerva? Don't call me that. The goddess's gray eyes flared with anger. I used to carry a spear and a shield. I held victory in the palm of my hand. I was so much more than this. Mom, Annabeth's voice trembled. It's me, Annabeth, your daughter. My daughter. Athena repeated, Yes, my children will avenge me. They must destroy the Romans. Horrible, dishonorable, copycat Romans. Hera argued that we must keep the two camps apart. I said no, let them fight. Let my children destroy the usurpers. Amma's heartbeat thumped in her ears. You wanted that? But you're wise. You understand warfare better than any once. The goddess said, replaced, sacked, looted like a trophy and carted off away from my beloved homeland. I lost so much. I swore I would never forgive. Neither would my children. She focused more closely on Annabeth. You are my daughter? Yes. The goddess fished something from the pocket of her shirt, an old-fashioned subway token, and pressed it into Annabeth's hand. Follow the mark of Athena, the goddess said. Avenge me. Annabeth had looked at the coin. As she watched it, it changed from a New York subway token to an ancient silver drachma, the kind used by Athenians. It showed an owl, Athena's sacred animal, with an olive branch on one side and a Greek inscription on the other, the mark of Athena. At the time, Annabeth had no idea what it meant. She didn't understand why her mom was acting like this. Minerva or not, Minerva or not, she shouldn't be so confused. Mom, she tried to make her tone as reasonable as possible. Percy is missing. I need your help. She had started to explain Hera's plan for bringing the camps together to battle Gaia and the giants, but the goddess stamped her walking stick against the marble floor. Never! She said, anyone who helps Rome must perish. If you would join them, you are no child of mine. You have already failed me. Mother! I care nothing about this Percy. If he has gone over to the Romans, let him perish. 
Kill him. Kill all the Romans. Find the mark. Follow it to its source. Witness how Rome has disgraced me. And pledge your vengeance. Athena isn't the goddess of revenge. Annabeth's nails bit into her palms. The silver coins seemed to be grow seemed to grow warmer in her hand. Percy is everything to me. And revenge is everything to me, the goddess snarled. Which of us is wiser? Something is wrong with you. What's happened? Rome happened, the goddess said bitterly. See what they've done, making a Roman of me. They wish me to be their goddess? Then let them taste their own evil. Kill them, child. No! Then you are nothing. The goddess turned to the subway map. Her expression softened, become confused and unfocused. If I could find the route, the way home, then perhaps, but no. Avenge me or leave me. You are no child of mine. Annabeth's eyes stung. She thought of a thousand horrible things she wanted to say, but she couldn't. She had turned and fled. She tried to throw away the silver coin, but it simply reappeared in her pocket. The way Riptide did for Percy. Unfortunately, Annabeth's drachma had no magical powers, at least nothing useful. It only gave her nightmares, and no matter what she tried, she couldn't get rid of it. Now, sitting in her cabin aboard the Argo II, she could feel the coin growing warm in her pocket. She stared at the model of the Parthenon on her computer screen and thought about the argument with Athena. Phrases she'd heard over the last few days swirled in her head. A talented friend, ready for her visitor. No one will retrieve that statue. Wisdom's daughter walks alone. She was afraid she finally understood what it all meant. She prayed to the gods that she was wrong. A knock on her door made her jump. She hoped it it might be Percy, but instead... Frank Zhang poked his head in. Uh, sorry, he said. Could I? She was so startled to see him, it took her a moment to realize he wanted to come in. Sure, she said. Yes. He stepped inside, looking around the cabin. There wasn't much to see. On her desk sat a sack of books, a journal, and pen, and a picture of her dad's flying his Sopwith camel biplane, grinning and giving the thumbs up. Annabeth liked that photo, reminded her of the time she felt closest to him. When he strafed, when he strafed an army of monsters with celestial bronze machine guns just to protect her. Pretty much the best present a girl could hope for. Hanging from a hook on the wall was her New York Yankees cap, her most prized possession from her mom. Once the cap had had the power to turn its wearer invisible. Since Annabeth's argument with Athena, the cap had lost its magic. Annabeth wasn't sure why, but she'd stubbornly brought it along on the quest. Every morning, every morning she would try it on, hoping it would work again. So far, it had only served as a reminder of her mother's wrath. Otherwise, her cabin was bare. She kept it clean and simple, which helped her think. Percy didn't believe because she always made excellent grades, but like most demigods, she was ADHD. When there were too many distractions in her personal space, she was never able to focus. So, Frank, she ventured, what can I do for you? Out of all the kids on the ship, Frank was the one she thought least likely to pay her a visit. She didn't feel any confused when he blushed and pulled his Chinese handcuffs out of his pocket. I don't like being in the dark about this, he muttered, 
could you show me the trick? I didn't feel comfortable asking anyone else. Annabeth processed his words with a slight delay. Wait, Frank was asking her for help? Then it dawned on her. Of course, Frank was embarrassed. No, Leo had been razzing him pretty hard. Nobody liked being a laughingstock. Frank's determined expression said he'd never wanted that to happen again. He wanted to understand the puzzle. Is that the iguana solution? Emmett felt strangely honored. Frank trusted her not to make fun of him. Besides, she had a soft spot for anyone who was seeking knowledge. Even about something as simple as Chinese handcuffs. She patted the bunk next to her. Absolutely. Sit down. Frank sat on the edge of the mattress as if preparing for a quick escape. Annabeth took the Chinese handcuffs and held them next to her computer. She hit the key for an infrared scan. A few seconds later, a 3D model of the Chinese handcuffs appeared on the screen. She turned the laptop so that Frank could see. How did you do that? He marveled. Cutting edge ancient Greek technology, she said. Okay, look, the structure is a cylindrical biaxial braid, so it has excellent resilience. She manipulated the image so it's squeezed in and out like an accordion. When you put your fingers together, when you put your fingers inside, it loosens. But when you try to remove them, the circumference shrinks as the braid catches and tightens. There's no way you can pull free by struggling. Frank stared at her blankly. But what's the answer? Well, she showed him some of her calculations. How the handcuffs could resist tearing under incredible stress, depending on the material used in the braid. Pretty amazing for a woven structure, right? Doctors use it for attraction and electrical contractors. Uh, but the answer? Ambeth laughed. <laughs> you don't fight against the handcuffs. You push your fingers in, not out. That loosens the braid. Oh, Frank tried it. It worked. Thanks, but couldn't you have just shown me on the handcuffs without the 3D program and the calculations? Annabeth hesitated. Sometimes wisdom came from strange places, even from giant teenage goldfish. I guess you're right. That was silly. I learned something too. Frank tried the handcuffs again. It's easy when you know the solution. Many of the best traps are simple, Annabeth said. You just have to think about it and hope your victim doesn't. Frank nodded. He seemed reluctant to leave. You know, Emmett said, Leo doesn't intend to be mean. She's just got a big mouth. When people make him nervous, he uses humor as a defense. Frank frowned. Why would I make him nervous? You're twice his size. You can turn into a dragon. And Hazel likes you, Annabeth thought, though she didn't say that. Frank didn't look convinced. Leo can summon fire. He twisted the handcuffs. Annabeth, sometime, maybe... Could you help me with another problem that's not so simple? I've got, I guess you could call it an Achilles heel. Ambeth felt like she just had a drink of Roman hot chocolate. She never really gotten the term warm and fuzzy, but Frank gave her that sensation. He was just a big teddy bear. She could see why Hazel liked him. I'd be happy to, she said. Does anyone else know about this Achilles heel? Percy and Hazel, he said. That's it. Percy, he's a really good guy. I would follow him anywhere. Thought you should know. Ammit patted his arm. Percy has a knack for picking good friends. Like you. But Frank, you can trust anyone on the ship. Even Leo. We're all a team. We have to trust each other. I... I suppose. So what's the weakness you're worried about? The dinner bell sounded and Frank jumped. 
Maybe, maybe later, he said. It's hard to talk about. But thanks, Annabeth. He yelled out the Chinese handcuffs. Keep it simple. And that's the end of chapter 17. Very detail-oriented and very relationship-building. A lot of relationship-building in this specific chapter. And we got to see more, uh, I think, as the chapters are now continuing to progress, we're going to start seeing more and more of relationship-building between everyone in the cabin you know even the people that don't even talk to each other we might even get some real good one-on-ones with like um people that you never expect to be talking like piper and hazel um they might have had maybe small conversations maybe one to two minutes but you know there's there's probably going to be a time and place for every single person to have a meaningful conversation and at the end of this all seven of them are going to be able to be really strong because you need, in order to be a team, you got to work together, right? And as cliche as, as that may sound, you really need to work together. You guys need to, you know, essentially be friends with one another. You know, know everyone's strengths and weaknesses. That way you're able to actually effectively be a team. So I think these conversations that are happening throughout these chapters are really building up towards that like perfect dream team that is going to happen when you have Gaia's war and everything which I hope doesn't happen but you know for the plot um but yeah I think that this was certainly a very crucial chapter uh to the plot Uh, it's a very crucial chapter towards building relationships between everyone in that uh, boat and yeah so after this break um go ahead go maybe drink some water go maybe grab a snack or something or maybe open uh close your book and maybe you know take a break because right after this we are going to uh read the chapter 18 and see how the rest of this fares out so see you then And we're back from the ads, and now we're going to read chapter 18, Annabeth. That night, Annabeth slept without nightmares, which just made her uneasy when she woke up, like the calm before a storm. Leo docked the ship at a pier in Charleston Harbor, right next to the seawall. Along the shore was a historical district with tall mansions, palm trees, and wrought iron fences. Antique cannons pointed at the water. By the time Annabeth came on deck, Jason, Frank, and Leo had already left for the museum. According to Coach Hedge, they promised to be back by sunset. Piper and Hazel were ready to go, but first Hannabeth turned to Percy, who was leaning on the starboard rail, gazing over the bay. Annabeth took his hand. What are you going to do while we're gone? Jump into the harbor? He said casually, like another kid might say. I'm going to get a snack. I want to try communicating with the local narrates. Maybe they can give me some advice about how to free those captives in Atlanta. Besides, I think the sea might be good for me. Being in that aquarium made me feel unclean. His hair was dark and tangled as usual, but Annabeth thought about the streak of gray he used to have on one side. When the two of them were 14, they'd taken turns, unwillingly, holding the weight of the sky. The strain left them both with some gray hair. Over the last year, while Percy had been missing, the gray streaks had finally disappeared from both of them, which made Annabeth sad and a little worried. She felt like she lost a symbolic bond with Percy. Annabeth kissed him. Good luck, seaweed brain. Just come back to me, okay? I will, he promised. You do the same. Annabeth tried to push down her growing unease. She turned to Piper and Hazel. Okay, ladies, let's find the ghost of the battery. 
Afterward, Annabeth wished she'd jumped into the harbor with Percy. She even would have preferred a museum full of ghosts. Not that she minded hanging out with Hazel and Piper. At first, they had a pretty good time walking along the battery. According to the signs, the seaside park was called White Point Gardens. The ocean breeze swept away the muggy heat of the uh, summer afternoon. It was pleasantly cool under the shade of the palmetto trees. Lining the road were old Civil War cannons and bronze statues of historical figures, which made Annabeth shudder. She thought about the statues in New York City during the Titan War, which had come to life thanks to Daedalus' command sequence 23. She wondered how many other statues around the country were secretly automatons, waiting to be triggered. Charleston Harbor glittered in the sun. To the north and south, strips of land stretched out like arms, enclosing the bay. And sitting in the mouth of the harbor, about a mile out, was an island with a, snow, with a stone fort. Annabeth had a vague memory of that fort being important in the Civil War. She didn't spend much time thinking about it. Mostly, she breathed in the sea air and thought about Percy. God, gods forbid she ever had to break up with him. She'd never be able to visit the sea again without remembering her broken heart. She was relieved when they turned away from the seawall and explored the inland side of the gardens. The park wasn't crowded. Annabeth imagined that most of the locals had gone on summer vacation or were holed up at home taking a siesta. They strolled along South Battery Street, which was lined with four-story colonial mansions. The brick walls were blanketed with ivy. The facades had soaring white columns like Roman temples. The front gardens were bursting with rose bushes, honeysuckle, and flowering bougainvillea. It looked like Demeter had set the timer on the, all the plants to grow several decades ago, then forgotten to come back and check on him. Kind of reminds me of New Rome, Hazel said. All the big mansions and the gardens, the columns and arches. Annabeth nodded. She remembered reading how the American South had often compared itself to, the Rome, to Rome back before the Civil War. In the old days, their society had, all, had been all about impressive architecture, honor, and codes of chivalry. And on the evil side, it had also been about slavery. Rome had slaves. Some Southerners had argued. So why shouldn't we? Annabeth shivered. She loved the architecture here. The houses and the gardens were very beautiful, very Roman. But she, rem- she wondered why beautiful things had to be wrapped up with evil history. Was it the other way around? Maybe the evil history made it necessary to build beautiful things, to mask the darker aspects. She shook her head. Percy would talk to her, would hate her, getting so philosophical. She tried to talk to him about stuff like that. His eyes glazed over. The other girls didn't say much. Piper kept looking around like she expected an ambush. She had said she'd seen this park in the blade of her knife, but she wouldn't elaborate. Annabeth guessed she was afraid to. After all, the last time Piper had tried to interpret a vision from her knife, Percy and Jason had almost killed each other in Kansas. Hazel also seemed preoccupied. Maybe she was taking in their surroundings, or maybe she was worrying about her brother. In less than four days, unless they found him and freed him, Nico would be dead. Annabeth felt that deadline weighing on her, too. She'd always had mixed feelings about Nico D'Angelo. She suspected that he'd had a crush on her ever since they rescued him and his big sister, Bianca, from the military academy in Maine. But Annabeth had never felt any attraction to Nico. He was too young and too moody. There was a darkness in him that made her uneasy. Still, she felt responsible for him. 
Back when they had met, neither of them had known about his half-sister, Hazel. At the time, Bianca had been Nico's only living family. When she had died, Nico became a homeless orphan, drifting through the world alone. Annabeth could relate to that. She was so deep in thought, she might have kept walking around the park forever. But Piper grabbed her arm. There, she pointed across the harbor, a hundred yards out. A shimmering white figure floated on the water. At first, Annabeth thought it might be a buoy or a small boat reflecting the sunlight. But it was definitely glowing, and it was moving more smoothly than a boat, making a straight line toward them. As it got closer, Annabeth could tell it was the figure of a woman. The ghost, she said. That's not a ghost, Hazel said. No kind of spirit glows that brightly. Annabeth decided to take her word for it. She couldn't imagine being Hazel, dying at such a young age and coming back from the underworld, knowing more about the dead than the living. As if in a trance, Piper walked across the street toward the edge of the seawall, narrowly avoiding a horse-drawn carriage. Piper! Annabeth called. We'd better follow her, Hazel said. By the time Annabeth and Hazel caught up to her, the ghostly apparition was only a few yards away. Piper glared at her as if the sight offended her. It is her, she grumbled. Annabeth squinted at the ghost, but it blazed too brightly to make out details. Then the apparition floated up the seawall and stopped in front of them. The glow faded. Annabeth gasped. The woman was breathtakingly beautiful and strangely familiar. Her face was hard to describe. Her futures seemed to shift from those of one glamorous movie star to another. Her eyes sparkled playfully, sometimes green or blue, or amber. Her hair changed from long, straight blonde to dark, chocolatey curls. Annabeth was instantly jealous. She'd always wished she had dark hair. She felt like nobody took her seriously as a blonde. She had to work twice as hard to get recognition as a strategist, an architect, a senior counselor, anything that had to do with brains. The woman was dressed like a southern belle, just as Jason had described. Her gown had a low-cut bodice of pink silk and a three-tiered hoop skirt with white scallop lace. She wore tall, white silk gloves and held a feathered pink and white fan to her chest. Everything about her seemed calculated to make Annabeth feel inadequate. The easy grace with which she wore her dress, the, perfe- the perfect yet understa- understated makeup, the way she ir- irradiated feminine charm that no man could possibly resist. Annabeth realized that her jealousy was irrational. The woman was making her feel this way. She'd had this experience before. She recognized this woman even though her face changed by the second, becoming more and more beautiful. Aphrodite, she said. Venus? Hazel asked in amazement. Mom, Piper said with no enthusiasm. Girls! The goddess spread her arms like she wanted a group hug. The three demigods did not oblige. Hazel backed into a palmetto tree. I'm so glad you're here, Aphrodite said. War is coming. Bloodshed is inevitable. So there's really only one thing to do. Uh, and that is? Annabeth ventured. Why? Have tea and chat, obviously. Come with me. Aphrodite knew how to do tea. She led them to the central pavilion in the gardens a white pillared gazebo where a table was set with silverware, china cups, and of course, a steaming pot of tea. The fragrance shifting as easily as Aphrodite's appearance, sometimes cinnamon or jasmine or mint, 
There were plates of scones, cookies, and muffins, fresh butter and jam, all of which, Annabeth figured, were incredibly fattening, unless, of course, you were the immortal goddess of love. Aphrodite sat, or held court, rather, in a wicker peacock chair. She poured tea and served cakes without getting a speck on her clothes. Her posture always perfect, her smile dazzling. Annabeth hated her more and more the, more the longer they sat. Oh, my sweet girls, the goddess said. I do love Charleston. The weddings I've attended in this gazebo, they bring tears to my eyes. And the elegant balls in the days of the Old South, ah, they were lovely. Many of these mansions still have statues of me in their gardens, though they called me Venus. Which are you? Annabeth asked. Venus or Aphrodite? The goddess sipped her tree, her tea. Her eyes sparkled mischievously. Annabeth Chase, you've grown into quite a beautiful young lady. You really should do something with your hair, though. And Hazel Levesque, your clothes. My clothes? Hazel looked down at her rumpled de denim, not self-consciously, but baffled as if she couldn't imagine what was wrong with them. Mother, Martin Piper said, you're embarrassing me. Well, I don't see why, the goddess said. Just because you don't appreciate my fashion tips, Piper, doesn't mean other the others won't. I could do a quick makeover for Annabeth and Hazel. Perhaps silk ball gowns like mine. Mother! Fine, Aphrodite sighed. <sighs> to answer your question, Annabeth, I am both Aphrodite and Venus. Unlike many of my fellow Olympians, I change hardly at all from one age to the other. In fact, I like to think I haven't aged a bit. Her fingers fluttered around her face appreciatively. Love is love, after all, whether you're Greek or Roman. This civil war won't affect me as much as will the others. Wonderful, Annabeth thought. Her own mother, the most level-headed Olympian, was reduced to a raving, vicious scatterbrain in a subway station. And of all the gods who might help them, the only ones not affected by the Greek-Roman schism seemed to be Aphrodite, Nemesis, and Dionysus. Love, revenge, wine. Very helpful. Hazel nibbled a sugar cookie. We're not in a war yet, my lady. Oh, dear Hazel, Aphrodite folded her fan. Such optimism. Yet, you have heart-trending days ahead of you. Of course war is coming. Love and war always go together. They are the peaks of human emotion. Evil and good. Beauty and ugliness. She smiled at Annabeth as if she knew what Annabeth had been thinking earlier about the Old South. Hazel set down her sugar cookie. She had a few crumbs on her chin. And Annabeth liked the fact that Hazel either didn't know or didn't care. What do you mean? Hazel asked. Heart-rending days? The goddess laughed as if Hazel were a cute puppy. Well, Annabeth could give you some idea. I once promised to make her love life interesting. And didn't I? Annabeth almost snapped the handle off her teacup. For years, her heart had been torn. First, there was Luke Castellan, her first crush, who had seen her only as a little sister. Then, he turned evil and decided he liked her right before he died. Next came Percy who was infuriating, but sweet. Yet he had a, seemed to be falling for another girl named Rachel. And then he almost died, several times. Finally, Annabeth had gotten Percy to herself, only to have him vanish for six months and lose his memory. Interesting, Annabeth said. It was a mild way of putting it. Well, I can't take credit for all your troubles, the goddess said, but I do love twists and turns in a love story. Oh, all of you are such excellent stories. I mean, girls, you do me proud. Mother, Piper said, is there a reason why you're here? Hmm? 
Oh, you mean besides the tea? I often come here. I love the food. The, uh, the view, the food, the atmosphere. You can just smell the romance and heartbreak in the air. Can't you? Centuries of it. She pointed to a nearby mansion. Do you see that rooftop balcony? We had a party there the night of the, the American Civil War began. The shelling of Fort Sumter. That's it, Ambit remembered. The island in the harbor. That's where the first fight of the Civil War happened. The Confederates shelled the Union troops and took the fort. Oh, such a party, Aphrodite said. A string quartet and all the men in their elegant new officers' uniforms. The women's dresses? You should have seen them. I danced with Ares. Or was he Mars? I, I'm afraid I was a little giddy. And the beautiful bursts of light across the harbor. The roar of the cannons giving the men an excuse to put their arms around their frightened sweethearts. Ambit's tea was cold. She hadn't eaten anything, but she felt like she wanted to throw up. You're talking about the beginning of the bloodiest war in U.S. history. Over 600,000 people died. More Americans in World War I and World War II combined. And the refreshments! Aphrodite continued. Ah, oh, they were divine. General, General Beauregard himself made an appearance. He was such a scoundrel. He was on his second wife then. Oh, but you should have seen the way he looked at Elizabeth Cooper. Mother! Piper tossed her scone to the pigeons. Yes, sorry, the goddess said. To make the story short, I'm here to help you girls. I doubt you'll be seeing your hair much. Your old quest has hardly made her welcome in the throne room. And the other gods are rather indisposed, as you know, torn between the Roman and Greek sides, some more than others. Aphrodite fixed her gaze on Annabeth. I suppose you've told your friends about your falling out with your mother? Heat rose to Annabeth's cheeks. Hazel and Piper looked at her curiously. Falling out? Hazel asked. An argument, Ambit said. It's nothing. Nothing, the goddess said. Well, I don't know about that. Athena was the most Greek of all goddesses. The patron of Athens, after all. When the Romans took over, oh, after, they adopted Athena after a fashion. She became Minerva, the goddess of crafts and cleverness. But the Romans had other war gods who were more to their taste, more reliably Roman, like Bologna. Reina's mom, Piper muttered. Yes, indeed. The goddess agreed. I had a lovely talk with Reina a while back, right here in the park. And the Romans had Mars, of course. And later there was Mithras, not even properly Greek or Roman. But the legionnaires were crazy about his cult. Now his found is him crass and terribly novidu. Novidu? Personally. At any rate, the Romans quite sidelined poor Athena. They took away most of her military importance. The Greeks never forgave the Romans for that insult. Neither did Athena. Ammit's ears buzzed. The mark of Athena, she said. It leads to a statue, doesn't it? It leads to... To the statue. Aphrodite smiled. You are clever, like your mother. Understand, though, your siblings, the children of Athena, have been searching for centuries. None have, has succeeded in recovering the statue. In the meantime, they've been keeping alive the Greek feud with the Romans. Every civil war... So much bloodshed and heartbreak has been orchestrated largely by Athena's children. That's... Ambeth wanted to say impossible, but she remembered Athena's bitter words in Grand Central Station. The burning hatred in her eyes. Romantic? Aphrodite offered. Yes, I suppose it is. But Ambeth tried to clear the fog from her brain. The mark of Athena, how does it work? Is it a series of clues or a trail set by Athena? Hmm, Aphrodite looked politely bored. 
Couldn't say. I don't believe Athena created the mark consciously. She knew where her statue was. She'd simply tell you where to find it. No. I guess the mark is more like a spiritual trail of breadcrumbs. It's a connection between the statue and the children of the goddess. The statue wants to be found, you see. But it can only be freed by the most worthy. And for thousands of years, Abbott said, no one has managed. Hold on, Piper said. What statue are we talking about? The goddess laughed. Oh, I'm sure Annabeth can fill you in. At any rate, the clue you need is close by. A map of sorts, left by the children of Athena in 1861. A remembrance that will stop, start you on your path. Once you reach Rome, but as you said, Annabeth Chase, no one has ever succeeded in following the mark of Athena to its end. There you'll face your worst fear. The fear of every child of Athena. And even if you survive, how will you use your reward? For war or for peace? Amethyst was glad for the tablecloth, because under the table, her legs were trembling. This math, map, she said. Where is it? Guys! Hazel pointed to the sky. Circling above the palmetto trees were two large eagles. Higher up, descending rapidly, was a flying chariot pulled by Pegasi. Apparently, Leo's diversion with Buford, the end table, hadn't worked. At least not for long. Aphrodite spread butter on a muffin as if she had all the time in the world. Oh, the map is at Fort Sumter, of course. She, she pointed her butter knife toward the island across the harbor. It looks like the Romans have arrived to cut you off. I'd get back to your ship in a hurry if I were you. Would you care for some tea cakes to go? And that's the end of chapter 18. Well, that certainly was a very fascinating conversation with Aphrodite. It's kind of like almost... No, no offense to Aphrodite, but it seems like Aphrodite is kind of like the messenger. Has turned into the messenger of Hera. Hera. And is just there to, you know, deliver the messages. Obviously, she's got her own power with love and everything. Because that's a very strong emotion. But right now, her duty seems to be just simply carrying on Hera's messages. So I'm curious to see how this role is going to start adapting or changing even. Or evolving throughout the story. And even if, and if Aphrodite's going to continue being like that. Or she might be another version of Hera in the end. We'll have to see as we continue to read chapter... Uh, as we continue to read the book. And... Ultimately, the, uh, the question at the end of the day is, did they get back to their ship? We'll have to see. So stay tuned for next week. And if you guys enjoyed this podcast, uh, you know, make sure to, if, uh, make sure to, you know, stay tuned for the next episode next week. And if you'd like to, totally optional, uh, you can go to the Patreon, uh, located in the, uh, description of my podcast and you can continue to show your support there. Again, totally optional, but really appreciate it if you could. But yeah, until then, guys, I hope you guys have had a great past week so far. And until next week, stay safe and stay out of boredom.